As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and um, it astounds me. It astounds us that we have it, the very word of God before us. And so I pray that you would enable me, enable us to pay attention, to really allow this word to penetrate our minds and our thoughts, to renew our thoughts, to bring life to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. The Gospel according to Mark in chapter 1. I want to read the first 11 verses. Mark chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee, And was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I want to take up this first chapter of the gospel of mark i'm not at the moment committing myself to working through all the whole gospel of mark right now but just this first chapter in the next number of weeks um, i actually preached through the whole of mark's gospel in 2001 which seems to me like last week uh but it's holy mackerel 14 years ago now thereabouts approaching but it's been a while but but anyway so if you want the whole of it you can find it if you you know look into the archives and all that sort of thing but i want to take up this first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to do that because of the time of year that it is, not because it's January or winter, but it's actually a season, as I mentioned. I sent out a brief note a couple of weeks ago now, a brief note saying that this is the season of the church called Epiphany. Now, you don't need to know that to be a Christian. It won't be on the test. Uh, but, uh, But the question that the church has traditionally asked during this season of Epiphany, and the answer that the church gives during this season of Epiphany, this answer that we find in the scripture, is on the test. So it's important to us. Now I mentioned that this word Epiphany, I'll just read a bit what I wrote to you last couple of weeks ago on January the 6th, which is the Feast of Epiphany. We should have that. Maybe we should have a feast next year on January the 6th of Epiphany. Maybe we could do breakfast. 
Bacon is always good. Um, uh, feasting food for me anyway. But anyway, um, I, I said, I wrote epiphany, uh, the definition, a sudden manifestation of, of per- the perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. So an epiphany means I see it, but it's a manifestation. I, I really get it. I get the essential nature of what this is. And so during this time of epiphany, the church has often set it apart uh, to be able to, to focus upon Jesus, asking the question, who is he really? What do we see when we see Jesus? Uh, who does, who's revealed? What's revealed when we see, when we see Jesus? And, and when we see Jesus, we're looking for his essential glory. That's this sense of, of epiphany. Now, I've shared before that I learned the meaning of the word glory from my grandmother. Now, Dad, it's your mom, so she taught me this. Um, and I, I noticed because we had lots of little kids in our family. And when a little toddler was running through her house naked, she always said, there he goes in all his glory. Right? Okay, and I didn't know it at the time. I just figured it out from context. That this is this, this is this, who this kid is. This is the essential nature of this kid. Now, it was confusing to me because when my grandfather would fall asleep in the chair, she would say, there he is in all his glory, right? That really revealed himself. And then I had these bad pictures of my grandfather naked in the chair. And so I didn't want to think about glory for a long time. But But that's the sense of it, right? Glory means that... It's the essential, I see it, I see, I see the guts of it, I see the essential nature. And so during this time of epiphany, we're to see the glory of Jesus. Who is he really? And that's why I said, you don't need to know about epiphany. It's the season of the year unless you want to and all that sort of thing. That's not essential. But what is essential is that we really do see the glory of Jesus. The, the, the question that's being asked, the answer that's being given, who is this Jesus? That's essential to us. We really need to know that. You see, that's the sense of it all. John, I mean, Mark begins his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and when he says the beginning, you know, when you write a biblical book and you start it out by saying the beginning, you think of the beginning, Genesis. And thus you're thinking of a Recreation, you're thinking of something new here that God is speaking forth, that, that God is doing, that, that's going to renew, revive, recreate, if you will, all that's here and, and take that which is wrong out and, and, and make it right. That's the sense, the beginning. And it's the beginning of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the word gospel means good news. And in the days in which Mark wrote, it meant that this news is epic. This news is changing of history this is a big deal and so it's it's this gospel it changes everything and it's the gospel of jesus it's the good news of jesus christ the son of god the good news is a person really it isn't first and foremost a philosophy it isn't first and foremost an idea it's it's a person who's come who who exists who's real Good news is Jesus. 
He has come. He's the Son of God, you see. He's going to make it right. He's the one we've been waiting for. You know, during Advent, the church asks, the church waits, asking the question, who is this one who is to come? Who is this one who's promised? And, and so we think about that from the Old Testament prophet's perspective, you know. We spend some time before Christmas thinking about who is this one who is to come? Who did they say he would be? What did they say he would do? And then we sit waiting even still for him. He's come, but he's coming again. And so we think about, well, what is going to happen when he when he returns this very Jesus? And so so now he's he's here. Christmas has come, you see. He's here, and so now we're asking this question: Who is he really? Let me see his glory. And so so John begins his gospel. This is what this is the good news. This glorious Son of God has indeed uh, indeed come. And so John begins. I'm sorry, I keep saying John. I'm going to say John in a minute. Mark. Uh, begins his gospel by speaking of John the Baptist, not first of Jesus, but John the Baptist coming to prepare the way. And he links John the Baptist with the prophets. He links him with the prophet Isaiah, of course, because it was Isaiah who said there's one going to come whose voice is going to cry in the wilderness, make way, uh, make the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so there would this there would be this this one to prepare who would come before the Lord, and he links him really, as the prophet Malachi does, but as Jesus does as well later, to the prophet Elijah. He links him. He's in the wilderness. He links him because he's weird. He links him because of the clothes that he wears. He wears odd clothes. He wears the clothes of a prophet. And, and there he is, like, like Elijah. And, and he has the same sort of message as Elijah, this, uh, this, this message of repentance. In fact, John has this, this symbol of repentance for forgiveness of sins, baptism. And so notice, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, to prepare to meet God. See, he was preparing the way of the Lord. And, and, and we know the way of the Lord is Jesus. We know that, you know, the Lord is Jesus. We, we know that he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, the Son of God incarnate. We, we know that's the one. He's coming, you see. But, but, but when Isaiah spoke of this, to make the way of the Lord, they would think, Make the way, prepare the way for God to come. And of course, we know Jesus is the very Son of God. Yes, divine. And so, yes, God has come in Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God. And so he's preparing the way to meet God. You see, there was this, this necessity always for cleansing. That would come by way of repentance. And re- repentance means to turn away from something and turn toward, really, something else. They had to turn away from the fact that they had turned away from God. That's repentance. Turning away from, having turned away from God. Does that make sense? You see, they would live, had lived, rather than allowing God to define their lives, to follow after him, they had lived defining their own lives. God had said it's like this, but we say it's like this, so we're going to follow our own way. To repent is to say, no, I'm wrong. I'm not to define my own way. I'm not to define my own life. But God is. And so I'm going to turn away from, having turned away from, God. Repentance. 
and, 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 and God is to direct my life, but, but I realize I've been directing my life. I've been doing things my own way. I've been, I've been saying this is right and this is wrong. I'll go this way, go that way. I'll do this, I'll do that. And I realize now that that's not the way of God. And so repentance means I'm turning away from directing my own life and turning to God to direct my own life, you see. I'm turning away from having turned away from God. And I'm supposed to delight in the ways of God, but I've been delighting in my own ways. I've been finding pleasure in that which isn't pleasurable to God. I've been finding pleasure in those things which are not of God. And so repentance means I'm going to turn away from finding my pleasure in those, and I'm going to find my pleasure in God in the things of God. And so I'm going to turn away from having turned away from God. And there are always, with real repentance, there's always a real sense of sorrow. And the sense of sorrow comes because God is. And God is love. And God has loved me. And I've, I've turned away from him. And I've offended him, really. I've not loved him as I ought. He's loved me. I've loved him. And so there's always that sorrow. There's always that regret. There's always that sorrow that says, oh, I shouldn't have. And I'm really sorry. It's not that I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm in trouble. I'm sorry I'm guilty. It's, it's, I'm sorry I hurt you. Well, you can be sorry about all those other things, but, but there's, I'm sorry, God, that I've offended you. There's that sense of it. I, I get it. I understand. There's a connection now. There's, this is personal. This isn't business. This is personal, right? I realize, God, you're a person and I've offended, I've offended you. So now I'm turning back to you, turning away from, turning back to you. I'm sorry. And there's this also the sense that that's all come about because now I understand something I didn't understand before. I see it better. I, my mind is now changed about this. So mind changed. Turn around. Sorry. And I realize then, if I'm going to be reunited with you, God, then my sins must be forgiven. And so that's the way John prepared the way. And he did it with this, with this symbol of baptism, a good one. He used water. And water was always known to the, an Israelite as that which cleansed. Second service, we have a baptism, so I get to touch water and I'll use it more. Second service as an illustration, but, but there's real, to, to cleanse, you see. And you might remember, you probably don't, but you might remember in Exodus chapter 19, that uh, when, when the people were round Mount Sinai, you know, they had left Egypt and, and they'd come to the mountain and, and it was shaking and smoking and all of that because there was the presence of God. God says, uh, wash yourselves. Now, I, I don't think he'd be saying wash yourselves because you know, you've gotten a little dirty, you know, in your hike. That wasn't the point of it. The point is to realize that if you're going to be in my presence, you must be clean. So wash yourselves. That'll, that'll remind you of the fact. That I'm holy, so why, if you're going to prepare to be in my presence, wash yourselves. Well, when the priests would be ordained into the priesthood, and even when they would go into the presence of God on behalf of the people, they would wash themselves. There was a sense of baptism, really. They would be baptized, they'd be washed, so they could be in the presence of God. So, so baptism was not weird. It wasn't an odd thing. In making preparation for the Lord to come. It would be a very natural thing. A very normal thing. If you're going to use something as a symbol. To, to be in the presence of God. Water is your thing. You see. And so. I don't know how you picture John baptizing. 
If you grew up in a Baptistic tradition, you have people being immersed. If you grew up in a Presbyterian or Reformed or other liturgical tradition, you have John picking up a shell and, and putting water in the shell and pouring it on people's heads. So I don't know how you're going to picture that. You know how I picture that. But I'm the shell guy. But but doesn't matter. But however it is, it's water. And so to prepare the way of the Lord to be in the presence of God, there must be cleansing. And so John was calling Israelites in preparing the way of the Lord. John was calling Israelites to come and be baptized. Repentance. Forgiveness of sins. And they came by the tens of thousands. Now, now John understood his place in all of this. He understood that there was one who was coming who had a better baptism. Who had a greater baptism than he. And, and he, was, he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, he's more powerful than I. And that was saying a lot because when people saw John the Baptist, because of the way he looked and just the way he was, and if they were good Hebrews, they would know, they would think of Elijah. And if they thought of Elijah, they would think of the most powerful prophet that, that ever was, this powerful prophet that could call fire down from heaven, this powerful prophet that could stop the rain and start the rain. And so Elijah was known as the powerful prophet. And when John, who looked like Elijah, said, this one that comes more powerful than I, they would have to sit up and take notice. And not only that, he's holier than I am. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. That's the point of humility that I have towards him. Because you see, all I have is a baptism that has water to symbolize repentance. But he has a baptism that he brings. And it's with the Holy Spirit. And the others would put in the other Gospels. And with fire. This purifying baptism. This baptism that just doesn't, it's not on the outside that just symbolizes, but it's on the inside. It just doesn't cover with water, but it's the Holy Spirit who comes within and does his work, you see. That's the kind of baptism that this one is coming to bring. And so you can see all of it set up. He's set up. You're going to meet the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You come in repentance and you come seeking forgiveness of sins. And he will come and he'll baptize you with fire. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit, you see. And when they heard baptism with the Holy Spirit, they would think of, no doubt, the prophet Ezekiel. It was Ezekiel who wrote of this, of this Holy Spirit in various ways. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet puts it like this, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. He said, when this one comes... It will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what will happen. You'll be sprinkled clean, be cleansed on the inside by way of the purifying Holy Spirit. That'll work in such a way that you'll take out your heart of stone that, that can't respond. It'll put in a heart of flesh which believes, you see. And then he says, my spirit, of course, 
will be in all of this and be in you so that you'll walk in my ways. That's the very sense, you see, of this conversion, of, of being converted to Jesus, to, to God through Jesus, and, 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 and repenting and receiving forgiveness and, and walking with him. That's the sense of it. And John is saying, all that's coming. Right? Well, then Jesus comes. And this verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And I want to say, come on, Mark. Can't you give me a little more? I mean, you give me one sentence of this profound event. Because bells and whistles are going off in my head. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, he's the Holy One. He's the one you're talking about. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Why did? Why don't you come to Jesus and say, baptize me with the Holy Spirit? Let's get on with this. Why, why does Jesus need to be baptized? And in fact, I know, because I've read ahead a bit, I know that Jesus is sinless. I know that he's perfect. I know that he didn't need forgiveness of sins. I know that he never turned away from his father, so he didn't need to repent. So why is it that Jesus is, is, is receiving this baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Mark doesn't say anything. He doesn't tell us. In fact, we'll find that. you find that as you read the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you know this old television show, he's the Joe Friday of, of, uh, of gospel writers, just the facts. He just kind of lays it out. Uh, he's very objective and boom, 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 very quick about it, very event focused. He either assumes you know the details or, or he says this isn't necessary, these details aren't necessary for my point. Because his point is that here's Jesus who receives this baptism. He identifies, Jesus does. He identifies with us. He identifies with sinners. Even though he isn't one. And he comes in humility and he says, no, 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 no. This is the work I've come to do. The work I've come to do is to identify sinners, to represent sinners, to be the sacrifice for sinners. In fact, you get the sense, if you read the whole of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus sees through this baptism to another baptism in Mark in chapter 10. Uh, the disciples of Jesus are talking about who's the greatest and Jesus speaks to them. And in verse 38 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And when the cup like that is spoken, in fact, even when the cup is laid out for us, it's the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus says, you're able to drink that cup or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Jesus, I think, could see through this baptism with water that identified him with us and see that he one day would be baptized in a fountain filled with his own blood because you see in order for what was being symbolized by this water to really bring forgiveness of sins in order for forgiveness of sins to come Jesus would have to die 
And the reason for that is because, you see, forgiveness is free to the one forgiven, but always costly to the forgiver. In one sense, there is no free forgiveness. And that sense is from the perspective of the one who forgives. For instance, if I have a lamp in my house, in my wife's house, she's the one who has lamps. But if we have a lamp in our house and it costs $100 and you come to our house and you break it and I forgive you, you're forgiven. I'm out 100 bucks. I mean, I, somebody's got to pay for the lamp. I mean, the lamp is broken. If I'm going to replace the lamp, I need $100. So if I forgive you and say you don't need to pay, I need to pay. Somebody, so I'm the one who incurs the cost, you see. If you slander me and ruin my reputation, I can forgive you. But I still have this reputation that's been slandered. I bear the cost of that, you see. Forgiveness is free to the one forgiven. The graciousness of it. But it costs always the forgiver. And so for what John was, was, was preparing in these people to be reconciled to God, you see, to come in repentance and turn away from their sin, that's great to turn away from their sin, but they would continue to sin and they had sinned in the past. And so who's going to pay for that? I mean, uh, God will. That was the point of it. Jesus came because God said, I'll, I'll, I'll pay. I'll pay for your sin. And so as he's being baptized, if you could see it, if you could see the glory of Jesus when he's being baptized, what's happening at that moment is he's saying, pour this water on me, repentance for forgiveness of sins, and I will bring forgiveness of sins through the baptism that is to come in the fountain of my own blood. That's it, you see. And Jesus could see through that. Now, now you see the reason that John, I'm sorry, Mark, wants to say this to us. The reason that he's laying this out as he is, this profound event, and and beginning this gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is because it's necessary for every human being to deal with this. It's necessary for every human being to deal with this. Jesus would later say, and here it is in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. Jesus, in speaking to a group of people, would would put it like this. John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, Sees him who sent me. So, so if you're getting who Jesus is, if you're seeing his glory, you're seeing him, but you're also seeing God. You're seeing the one who sent him, the Father. I have come into this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He says, if you see me, then you, you're, you, you, you see everything through me. You, you see, I lighten everything, you see. Then you really understand life. Without me, there's no light. Without me, you can't really understand life. Without me, you really can't understand what, you really can't see what's important, what isn't important. You can't really see what's sin and what isn't. You can't really see what's grace and what's not. 
says, I've come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. You see, that's why this is crucial. Everyone must deal with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one, his word, by whom we'll all be judged. And you may say, well, I didn't hear it, but, but, but it's still the truth, you see. For I haven't spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life, what I say therefore. I say as the Father has told me. And so Jesus comes, you see, to reveal and to be revealed. And his being revealed, we see it, you see. We see the very message of the gospel. We see the very truth of the gospel. We, we see everything through him. And it's crucial. John says, you've really got to see this. And in the baptism, what we're seeing is that Jesus identifying with us. And he's taking upon himself the guilt of our sin from which we must repent. And then he pays the penalty, the cost, so that forgiveness comes to all who trust in him. That's the essence of it. Without it, we're lost. And with it, we have, we have eternal life. That's the very, the very point of it. So then, a dove comes. <laughs> Why a dove? I don't know. I've read a lot about it, but I I'll just, a dove. Whether it's a dove, a real dove, and you see a real dove, or whether it's like a dove, so it's just sort of a simile, some sort of illustration, sort of comes fluttering like a dove, and there can be all kinds of things we could say about this. But the point of it is that the heavens are torn open. Now, the way I have this playing in my head, I always had it playing in my head until Friday, that Jesus is baptized, comes out, uh, the heavens are torn, but not really torn. At least in my picture, nothing really happens in the heavens except this little dove flutters down, rests on his shoulders. Probably in my, in my little children's Bible, this is the way, this was the picture. So it's always been in my mind. And so it kind of lands... And some of the pictures on his head, and some of the pictures his shoulder, and it's just sweet. But that doesn't seem to do justice to torn open. I have no idea what that would have looked like. But I don't think it would have looked like nothing. I think it would have looked like something. You remember, uh, third week of Advent, probably don't remember, but on the third week of Advent, we took a look at Isaiah chapter 64, which was Isaiah's prayer. Because everything was wrong and he knew the promise of God for the kingdom. And so he prayed, God, rend the heavens, tear the heavens and come down. And, and certainly that happened in, in the incarnation in some sense. But it's happening again that the heavens are being rent and, 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 and this Holy Spirit comes, you see. And one uh, preacher, you don't know him, Jeff Thomas, he lives in Wales, put it like this. He said, you all realize 
that this was not the sight of a little door in the sky opening and a blaze of light coming out and the sounds of praise from inside. Rather, you must think of it like this, that you're standing on the promenade looking out to the sea and there before you is the whole vault of heaven and the sea stretching out to the distant horizon and suddenly that whole heaven, like a vast curtain, has been grasped by the hands of God and torn apart. You're seeing through the prospect uh, that was there a moment before and suddenly you're looking into heaven in all its glory you're seeing the presence of God and all his holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect you're standing in the bright joyful presence of that reality I don't know if that's true but whether that was seen that's the sense of it in heaven's to heaven the very presence of God is laid bare for us. And his spirit comes, you see. And he comes then upon, uh, upon Jesus. Isaiah spoke of this. Isaiah spoke of this, this uh, uh, spirit coming upon this servant uh, in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and will bring forth justice to the nations. That is righteousness. He'll bring righteousness. He'll bring that which is right all over the earth. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or be heard in the street. This gives his, the way he's going to go about his business. And to me, verse 3 of Isaiah 42 is a life, has been a life-changing verse. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's that's the way this Jesus comes, you see. He comes not to destroy us. He comes at our most vulnerable points, you see. And he doesn't break us and condemn us, but he, he touches and he forgives. So where we're about to break, he doesn't break us, but strengthens us. Where we're about to be extinguished, he doesn't extinguish us, but bursts us forth into flame. That's how he'll work, you see. He will not grow faint Or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his, for his law. Isaiah chapter 61 again speaks of this one who is to come and this spirit who is to come upon him. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor on the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress of, uh, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit, they'll be called the oaks of righteousness. You see, see, that's this one who's to come. And when the Holy Spirit, you see, comes then upon Jesus, that moment in time, we know he's the one, he's the one, Ordained by God. He's the one loved by God. He's the one called by God. He's the one empowered by God to go <clears throat> and to bring this baptism of the Spirit, you see. Even to the likes, even to the likes of us. He's the King. Uh, Psalm 2 says that, that, that this is my son. And this is my son who is the King, really. I give him the nations. And so you see, this voice that comes, not just this dove that comes or whatever the Holy Spirit comes upon him, but this voice comes. I don't know if you ever thought about the voice of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
I always hate it in movies when someone's trying to imitate the voice of God. It always sounds hokey. You know, even in some of these Bible audios, you know, you're listening to the Bible being read and they try to do the different voices and that's kind of nice. But when they get to the voice of God, it's always bad. I mean, you go, so whatever God's voice sounds like, it doesn't sound like any of that. Psalm 29 says the voice of God is powerful when he speaks the mountains shake, right? But then it also says that when he speaks, uh, uh, the deer gives birth. And so he, his, his voice accomplishes everything in the, in the appropriate way, from being gentle to being powerful, whatever it is. And, and, and when God's voice speaks, the point is, just like at creation, when God's voice, when he speaks, it happens. And so when he said, this is my son, he wasn't making Jesus his son at that moment. He was announcing it. But in the announcing of it, he was, he was announcing it in such a way. So this is really true. But what's fascinating here is that Mark makes the point that it's Jesus who sees the spirit coming. And it's Jesus who hears the voice of his father. Now, I assume that others saw it too. But, but Mark is saying, this is for Jesus. And so Jesus hears at this moment in time, you're my son. I'm pleased with you. What a wonderful thing. Now, I, I don't know how the Father and Son and Holy Spirit relate to one another. Other than in love. Other than to glorify each other. Other than to joyfully assist, help, inform, be with the other. But the Spirit comes to empower Jesus and the voice of the Father comes to say, you're mine and I'm, I'm pleased with you, you see. And I suspect that hearing the voice of his Father at that moment in time sustained Jesus Throughout his work. You say, why would he need it? I, I don't know. But it was purposeful. And purposeful, I think. To sustain Jesus. To hear that and to say, yes. I'm empowered by the Spirit. I'm about the work that my Father has sent me and is pleased with me. As I go into that work. I didn't read it. But the very next couple of verses. Are the verses that speak to us of Jesus. And Mark does it. Without much detail at all. About Jesus being led by the spirit. Into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. Into that lonely spot. And, and to be. At this onslaught of, of, of Satan himself. Against him. And I suspect. That what sustained him. Was the power he received from the spirit. And the affirmation he knew from his father. So who is he? Uh, this Jesus is like us. Except without sin. He's like us. He identifies with us. He takes upon himself our guilt and our need for repentance. And yet then he dies that we might be forgiven 
And in his very life, the heavens open. I don't know if this thought has come to you while I've been talking. But there's one other occasion in the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, the others as well, where this expression torn open happens. And it happens when Jesus dies and the veil of the temple is torn open. And there it is, we see the heavens. And we enter in to the very presence of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. That we'd see it. That we'd see Jesus, who he is. We need to, God. We need to see. Reveal him to us. Maybe some today for the very first time to really see it. Others to see it again anew afresh and and thrill our souls with it to know Because Jesus has come, this gospel is true because it is great news and it means everything. Father, enable us then to see it. We pray now even around this table to see it, that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we can see the baptism of Jesus and all that it means. And this we pray in his name.